Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. We're going to take today and do uh, something we haven't done in a little while, and we've been asking you to send in your questions, and uh, you have obliged to that. And so today I want to take just a few minutes and go through a few of the questions that have come in to our email and different ways that they've come in to us. You have asked a lot of fantastic questions. I I do encourage you to continue to send those in. We do want to be a help and a support to you uh, in whatever capacity we can. Uh, So please do make sure that uh, you continue to send those in to us. But uh, we, we want to make sure that uh, we're, we're being as helpful uh, and supportive uh, as we can. And um, these questions that you've sent, a lot of them require quite a lot of explanation and, and more background, I'm sure, than I can cover in just a few minutes. So the, I think as best we can, we're going to try and put some uh, additional links and articles and things in the show notes uh, so that you can have a more robust answer if that's what you're looking for. Well, our first question is no slouch. It's a question that we hear quite often and is quite common, which is, why would God create us knowing we would fall and suffer? And often added to this question is, why would a loving God create us knowing we would fall and suffer? And with that start, this assumption that love is God's only attribute, or that his love is in conflict with some other attribute of God, like his justice, or that love demands that God never allow evil or wickedness. The problem with this line of thinking uh, is that it is very narrow in scope. Now, these are natural questions that uh, people do ask, but we tend to ask them from a human perspective, right? We look at those around us suffering or dying, or, or we may be going through a great trial or a great ordeal ourselves. And so we ask, how could a loving God allow this? We, in a sense, put God in the judgment seat, and then we begin to interrogate him. This was certainly Job's case when he desired to question God, and God has no obligation to respond to Job, but he humiliates himself and to his creation by giving an explanation. The issue with the explanation is that not many people are satisfied with it, and it's not an explanation that we would probably have expected or desired. We, we want specific, concrete answers, but God instead, he appeals to his divine right of inscrutability, his unknowableness, his mystery, the, the aspects of God that we don't, we cannot comprehend. Uh, and he points out the limitations of human understanding. Now, we have to admit that finite minds cannot fully grasp the mind of the infinite divine God. In fact, if anything, that actually makes me rejoice that I have put my saving trust in a God who I cannot Uh, condensed down to something simplistic, that he is so complex and he is so magnificent and wonderful that my mind doesn't fully grasp it. That, I think, actually brings me great joy. Because if I could simplify God to just one thing, then, uh, you know, something tells me that I I may not have a very strong God if that were the case. 
but the point, God's point in his explanation to Job is that while human beings may have questions about how the Lord rules his world, they have no justification for demanding answers from him. He is the creator, but we are the creatures. We are not in a place to call God to justify himself. And see, that's just one aspect, is is, is understanding the creator-creature relationship. That is just the, the nature of things. You know, the, uh, Paul writes later in, in Romans, who are you, O oh man, that the clay should question the, the potter? I think we start there. I think that's often where we don't start. We often start from an anthropocentric, a, a man-centered universe. We, we start from that perspective. And so there's a lot of breakdown in our understanding of who God is when we start from a bad position like that. So that's a, a positional start. Then there is the fact that God does all for his glory. Everything he does is for his glory. It may be that we have too weak a view of redemption, of salvation, of forgiveness. We may have too small a view of what it was exactly that Jesus did in leaving heaven, coming to earth, his creation earth, to live a life of poverty, to live a life of perfection, and then to be killed by the very people he set apart so that we can have a restored and right relationship after all. Now, there's a second part to this question, uh, which is in regard to hell. The question asks, uh, how could a loving God condemn anyone to a hell that lasts for eternity? Where's the love? Again, there's a, a misunderstanding of what love is. Now, I find it is interesting that people have no problem with the idea of heaven. They have no problem with God creating a place like heaven or to allow people an eternity in heaven. But hell is just too terrible. The other thing to consider is that as humans, our sentiments are towards humans, right? So the thought of eternal torment to us sounds inhumane. Who would do such a thing or even allow such a thing? One Bible scholar writes, those who protest the biblical doctrine of hell as being excessive betray their inadequate comprehension of the sinfulness of sin. For sinners to be consigned to anything less than the horrors of eternal punishment would be a miscarriage of justice. How can God exact infinite punishment for a finite sin? That would be the natural follow-up question for that. Well, first, we have to understand that it's because the person against whom all sin is committed is infinite. Crimes against the infinitely holy, infinitely kind, infinitely good, and infinitely supreme ruler of the world deserves unending punishment. In addition to that, those condemned to hell will go on sinning for eternity, and there's no repentance in hell. So the punishment will continue as long as the sinning does. The dreadfulness of hell deepens our grateful praise for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Hell is what we deserve, and hell is what Christ experienced on the cross in our place. Believing the truth about hell, it also motivates us to persuade people to be reconciled to God. 
You see, a, a clearer vision of hell will give us a greater love for both God and people. But I think it's important that we remember that our sentiment is always for our like, right? Our sentiment is for humankind, mankind. But again, we've come back to that man-centered, man is the center of all things. Man is the one who creates uh, laws and justice, that there's no uh, divine intervention in this, that it's not uh, a world that's been created by a good, loving, kind, merciful, gracious, just God. I think that's where all of this starts to fall apart. We've got to get a right understanding of God, who he is, what his holiness looks like, and what the demands that he makes of people are not unreasonable in the sense that he requires those things. And yet, in the knowing that we have fallen and that we cannot do those things on our own, he's been gracious enough to make that way available to him through Christ. So it makes the message of the gospel all the more brighter, all the more joyful and just wants to fall down on your knees and and thank God for that opportunity that he's given. That sending of Christ, the importance of that, the centrality of that. I think, unfortunately, we just have too small a view of Christ and what he's done. Our next question is in regards to friends or family who have had a bad experience at church and those friends or family want to leave church. They want to walk away uh, from that. And I would say to this, don't abandon this person. Now, obviously much rests on the situation of each case, but often these people need someone to come alongside them. Was whatever happened to them at church a correct way that they were being dealt with? They may be looking for someone to agree with them, to say, hey, you know, I was doing something wrong. They won't use that terminology, but they they want someone to come along and say, hey, you're justified. You didn't do anything wrong. So what you need to do as their friend or family member is stand firm for what is true, but then urge them to repentance if it is a sin issue. If it is a doctrinal issue with the church, then I think you probably need to encourage them to visit somewhere else. Certainly, if the case is is possible to to visit your own church, your own congregation, if they happen to live in another state, uh, maybe make some suggestions or 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 get them looking, get them going and visiting churches, and ask, give them a some criteria. And I'm sure we can add this to the show notes. Sort of the the four main things to be looking for uh, in a good church. But being disconnected from the body will not serve them well. That will only be a tool of the enemy to get them off of, of uh, away from biblical community, to get them out of the word, to get them thinking that it's, uh, you know, that, that there are no good churches out there because there are. Uh, okay. Another question here in my daily prayers, I ask God to forgive all my sins. However, since all of my past, present and future sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, I feel like I'm asking for something that has already been done should I keep asking for forgiveness of sins or should I instead thank God for forgiving them or both? Well, Hebrews tells us that uh, Christ suffered and died once and for all, right? So we know that his death was once and for all. 
But we also know that Scripture calls us to a life of confession. James chapter 5 tells us to confess our sins to one another. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful uh, and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So while the reality of forgiveness is ours now and into the future, that doesn't mean that we sit back and live like we have not been forgiven or like sin is of no consequence. You know, we're called to put sin to death. But when the awareness of sin is clear, we need that confession and repentance. It reminds us that we are always dependent on Christ for everything. You know, there's great danger in thinking we have arrived or that we have made it in some way. This is really the great danger of hyper-grace teaching in churches today. You know, that our justification, that reckoning us right to God, that is only available when we put our trust in Christ, that is a once and for all. But our sanctification, the process by which we are growing in Christ, growing in spiritual maturity and discipleship, that is an ongoing process until the Lord calls us home or he returns. So my encouragement to you is to keep on in your recognizing the sin in your life, Keep on confessing and repenting and keep on growing in grace and knowledge and maturity. Certainly, you can thank God for the forgiveness that he has bestowed upon you throughout your life. Uh, in fact, it's often helpful to remember those points in your life when you were really genuinely convicted as a believer of, of sin in your life and you felt that feeling of forgiveness that God had given to you and that calling out, you know, the, the Greek word metanoia, you know, calling from and to something. Uh, Christ doesn't just call us away from the sin and to nothing, but he calls us away from the sin and to Christ. In fact, if anything, it's really a calling to Christ, which then is naturally a turning away from the sin. Uh, so that's my encouragement to you. Uh, stick with that. Again, Bible community is is really uh, beneficial and helpful in that regard. And then we have a final question here, and it's in regards to ministry. Uh, a person is asking about how much theological training uh, they need to do ministry. Now, there's some nuance here. First, people do not need formal training to do the work of ministry. The only requirement is faith in Christ, an understanding of basic doctrines, and a willingness to be used by God, uh, because ministry is literally service. If you can serve the body of Christ, then you can do ministry. We should all be ministers uh, within the church, all of us who consider ourselves believers. We should all be ministers. We're called to serve as Christians. But there are particular callings, such as elders and overseers in the church, which have uh, specific requirements. And you can read about those in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Um, I would say if you are looking to be in a pastoral or preaching role, then a seminary education will serve you well. In fact, uh, when young guys uh, knew that I was in seminary when I was in seminary or, or that I had, I had already gone through it after I had finished uh, they would always uh, come and ask uh, if I thought it would be beneficial for them to go to seminary. And, and it reminds me of Charles Spurgeon's advice for his students uh, that he would tell them to get as far away from it as possible. Do anything else. Uh, and if God is in it, he will bring you to it. His point was that there were far too many people 
who haphazardly and carelessly or lazily entered into vocational ministry only to make a mess of things uh, because they were not actually called by God. My advice was to take one particular class at my seminary that was really helpful for confirming the calling in some and really showing the disinterest in others. Now, that is a good thing, I should say. Uh, It's not that vocational ministry is for better people, by no means. Uh, I just think you need to question your motives before entering in. Well, uh, those are some of the big questions that we've had today. I hope that that's uh, helpful for you. Uh, Again, for additional information, we'll put some notes uh, in the show notes, some links uh, to helpful articles to help you think uh, more clearly about these things. And please do continue to send your questions into us. Uh, That would be a big help. And uh, I do pray that the Lord would bless you today and remember things from God's perspective and uh, not just from our own. These are important things to remember uh, as we go out into his world and serve his kingdom. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit ltw.org slash candid to connect with these pages. Share your questions with me. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Thanks for listening.